Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 23 of the podcast. And man, I thought we had a busy episode last week, but this week... It's just as busy, if not busier. A ton of stuff to get through this week. Uh, It's going to be pretty football heavy this week. Of course, we got some NBA news to get to as well. Uh, But we'll start off like we normally do, and that's in the PGA Tour. This past weekend's tournament was the Century Tournament of Champions. And that was held at the Kapalua Plantation Course in Maui, Hawaii course was uh, about 7,600 yards, long course, played a par 73, so it's uh, unusual that a PGA event has a par 73, but that's what that was. The fairways on this course were super wide, uh, so that pretty much made it to where you knew there was going to be some low scores. Now, the field was uh, consisted of 42 players, all of those players made the tour championship last year in the FedEx Cup playoffs. There were no cuts this week, so all 42 guys that started ended up finishing. And it was a pretty good tournament. Beautiful scene out there in Maui. Uh, But the tournament ended up with Harris English winning at a score of 25 under par. Now, he actually won in a playoff hole uh, over Joaquin Neiman. Both finished at 25 under par, but in the playoff hole, Harris English birdied the 18th hole that they replayed, and Neiman parred, so Harris English ended up winning. With that win, it was Harris English's third career victory on tour and his first since 2013, so it had been a minute since he'd won. Now, He only had three bogeys all weekend, two of which, oddly enough, came in that final round on Sunday. So he played some pretty damn good golf all weekend. Pretty lights out. Now, Joaquin Neiman, he's one of the better young players in the game. He ended up shooting a 9-under on Sunday's final round to force the playoff hole. And like I said, he ended up losing the playoff hole, but he still got a second-place finish. Third place was Justin Thomas, and he finished one behind, one shot behind English and Neiman at 24 under par. Thomas started out on fire. He went eight under in the opening round and then closed with a seven under. So he was he played great consistent golf all week. And if you remember, we'll just get into it. Rick's picks to click for the Century Tournament of Champions. He was one of them. We'll talk about him in just a second. But my first pick to click from this past weekend was Xander Shoffley. 
And Shoffley had come into this uh, as a runner-up last year and a winner the year before that. So he was super familiar with this course, and I just liked for him to finish inside the top 25. And he did. He ended up finishing fifth with a score of 21 under par. Now, Shoffley had three eagles throughout the weekend, two of which came in Sunday's final round. Now, this is his third straight top five finish here at Kapalua. Finished fifth, of course, this past weekend, and like I said, second last year and first the year before that. But my second pick to click was Justin Thomas, and like I said, he had just, he finished third, 24 under par, and this is his eighth consecutive finish inside the top 12. Just absolutely insane. Nobody on the planet is playing better golf than Justin Thomas. The only guy that you could throw into that conversation that might be playing better golf is my third pick to click from this past week, and that was Dustin Johnson. Uh, He had come into this with four victories on tour since the PGA's restart last summer, and coming off a master, dominant Masters win at that, he ended up finishing tied for 11th at the Century Tournament of Champions with a score of 18 under par. Uh, he shot, and his best round was uh, Friday's second round where he shot 8 under. Um, he wasn't really elite all weekend, but he played good enough golf to uh, get inside, uh, just outside the top 10 at, at 11. So he definitely played some good golf. I ended up clicking on all three of my picks, a third, a fifth, and an 11th. I know there was only 42 golfers, but that's still pretty good finish uh, for the old Rick's picks to click. But this weekend's tournament is the Sony Open in Hawaii, and that's held at the YLA Country Club in Honolulu. So back-to-back weeks on the island. This course is much narrower and flatter than Kapalua was. It's only a par 70, so three-shot difference there on, on score to par. And it's 7,044 yards, so about 550 yards shorter for the entire length of the course. So it might play, uh, because it's narrower and flatter and it's a par 70, we probably won't see the extreme low scores we saw last week. Uh, But maybe we will. Who knows? Uh, But what's interesting about this course is for tournament purposes, the front and back nines are actually reversed so they can utilize the sunset setting in the west and we'll check out rick's picks to click for this week my first one i'm gonna go a little outside the box here um and that's gonna be lanto griffin he's ranked number 55 in the world Uh, he finished tied for 13th last week at kapalua and he was tied for seventh here at YLA last year. And in his last five starts, he's got three finishes inside the top 13. So he was a rookie last year. His name always seemed to be near the top of the leaderboard in every tournament he played. But he, to me, he's just, he's a good golfer. And uh, I'd like for him to finish inside the top 25 this week. Now my second pick to click not getting cute with this one. It's Harris English. He's 17th in the world. Of course, we just talked about it. He won last week at Kapalua. And he's looking to become the third player 
ever to sweep the Hawaiian events. And if he did so, he would join Ernie Els in 2003 and Justin Thomas in 2017. Both of those guys won back-to-back weeks at Kapalua and YLA. And Harris English has actually played here at this event eight times previously. And he's made seven cuts out of those eight events, including three top ten finishes. So I'm not just picking him because he won last week. There's actually merit to that pick. He's had success at this course, and he really is uh, a fan of the Hawaiian courses, so to speak. But we'll uh, move on to the National Football League. And this past weekend was Super Wild Card Weekend. So we had six playoff games, three on Saturday, three on Sunday. And, of course, as you recall, the only two teams that got a first-round bye were the number one seed, which the AFC was Kansas City Chiefs, NFC Green Bay Packers. So we'll recap the games here in order of how they were played. And we'll start off with the Saturday games. The first game on Saturday was in the AFC. It was the number seven Indianapolis Colts at the number two Buffalo Bills. Now, I picked Buffalo to win this game. Um, I just thought they were the better team. Indy's a good running team, uh, but I just like Buffalo to come out on top. And this was actually a really damn good game. Uh, it was super close for most of the game. Buffalo ended up winning 27-24, to but this game was back and forth all game, and Indy had a chance pretty much the entire game. Uh, they kept clawing back. Uh, they got down by a couple scores uh, in the second half, but they came back and brought it within a field goal. And, uh, you know, at the end of the game, the game actually ended on a Phillip Rivers incomplete Hail Mary pass. So, you know, we're talking right down to the wire. You know, we've seen more Hail Marys be complete this year between the NFL and college football uh, than we probably have seen in recent years. So this game was good. Uh, I watched pretty much the whole thing, and it was uh, Buffalo, you know, they kind of maybe started out a little slower than they wanted, especially being as favored as they were. But uh, they put it together, and they're moving on as a two seed. And the second game, well, let me back up. That combination of Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs for the Buffalo Bills, I mean, they're just unstoppable at this point. Josh Allen went 26 of 35 for 324 yards and two touchdowns passing, adding another 11 carries for 54 yards and a rushing touchdown. The guy has solidified himself in the NFL MVP conversation, probably going to finish second or third behind uh, Rodgers, maybe Mahomes, but I think Allen, he has put that team on his shoulders this year. And Stephon Diggs, my God, what an acquisition in the offseason for the Bills. He had six catches for 128 yards and a touchdown in this game. He led the NFL uh, in catches this season, and he's just been a monster. He is absolutely the perfect wide receiver for that offense and Josh Allen, and that was really on display uh, on Saturday. But the second game on Saturday was in the NFC. That was the number six seed LA Rams at the number three seed Seattle Seahawks. Now, my formal pick on this was Seattle. However, 
I explained in last week's episode my prediction that L.A. was not naming a starting quarterback until Saturday. And they didn't name a quarterback until the beginning of the game. And it was John Wolford, the starting quarterback. That's who they named because Goff's finger or Goff's thumb was still hurt. And I told you Jared Goff wasn't going to be 100% if he played. But he... uh, Goff ended up playing, and I'll explain why in just a second. But the Rams said John Wolford was starting. But I explained that Los Angeles' defense was the reason that they would have a chance at this game. And boy, was I right, because Rams' defense came out flying. They had yet another defensive touchdown on a pick six. They were all over the, all over the field. Aaron Donald is an absolute monster. He had a couple of sacks. Now, in the first quarter, I think it was the second drive, uh, John Wolford took it in uh, for a quarterback keeper, and he got planted as he was sliding by Jamal Adams, the Seahawks' safety. He was super slow to get up. He was in pain. They were looking at his neck. He ended up leaving the game for good. So in comes Jared Goff. Well, the first quarter was a total snooze fest. It was 3-0 L.A. after the first quarter. But then they had 27 points scored in that second quarter alone between both teams. So they picked it up. Now, Jared Goff was obviously less than 100%, and it was obvious. But the way that the Rams' defense played, Goff was as good as he needed to be. And then the rookie running back Cam Akers just picked up where he left off the last couple weeks of the season. He had 28 carries for 131 yards and a touchdown, two catches for 45 yards. So Akers was probably the offensive MVP for the Rams. Now the Rams ended up winning this game 30-20. to So I was incorrect on that pick, but I did tell you that LA's defense was something to watch for, and, and they definitely proved me right on that. This was just a total flop job by the Seahawks. I mean, they were at home. They were playing against a quarterback who nobody could name four weeks ago, three weeks ago. He got hurt, and then in comes Jared Goff, who he was definitely less than 100%. He may have only been 50%, but you could tell he was affected by by his thumb, and he just was not good. So Seattle just did not show up. I think they they thought the game may be Sunday instead of Saturday. I don't know what, what happened, but Russell Wilson only had 174 yards passing, two touchdowns and a pick. Pretty ugly there for Seattle. But the nightcap on Saturday night was the, in the NFC as well, and that was the number five Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the number four Washington football team. Now, I picked Tampa Bay to win because Tom Brady in the playoffs, uh, that's just not something you bet against, especially in the first round against a 7-9 and nine team. And uh, that proved to be correct because Tampa Bay won 31-23. Now, this game was actually way closer than it should have been or was expected to be, really. Washington kept it close the entire game. And after three quarters... They were only down by two points. So they were within a score 
after the third quarter. Way too close for comfort for Tampa Bay. But they ended up pulling away in the fourth quarter. Uh, Tom Brady in that offense, he had 381 yards passing, two touchdowns. Now, Tom Brady has beaten, with this win, he has now beaten 17 out of the 32 teams in the NFL in the playoffs. He's beaten more teams than any other quarterback in NFL history has playoff wins. That's absurd. Uh, if you're curious about the list of teams that Brady has beat, the Colts, the Jaguars, the Chargers, the Steelers, the Rams, the Ravens, the Titans, the Texans, the Chiefs, the Broncos, the Jets, the Raiders, those are all the AFC teams that he's beat, of course, playing in New England. Now, on the NFC side, he's beaten the Panthers, Eagles, Seahawks, and Falcons. And of course, that those were all Super Bowl wins. But the dude is just, I mean, the GOAT. That's that's uh, that's pretty much the way to sum it up. But on the flip side, Washington, they started a quarterback by the name of Taylor Heineke because Alex Smith was actually ruled inactive and didn't even dress for this game. So in steps Heineke. Of course, they cut Dwayne Haskins a couple weeks ago. And Heineke was actually a beast in this game. He had 306 yards and a touchdown passing. Six carries for 46 yards and a rushing touchdown. That was super sweet. Full extension reach for the pylon. And he had Twitter ablaze, man. There were some some other athletes talking about Heineke on Twitter. And that was a. it ended up being a, a lot better game than, than Tampa Bay probably wanted. But they did enough to get the job done. And Tampa Bay moves on to the second round. Now, Sunday's games, the first game on Sunday was an AFC matchup. Number five, Baltimore Ravens at number four, Tennessee Titans. I picked Baltimore to win this game. Technically an upset, but it's a 4-5 matchup, so it's really a pick game. And Baltimore ended up winning 20-13. to it was a typical AFC slugfest. And Tennessee, though, the Titans were up 10 to nothing after the first quarter. And I just told you the final score was 20 to 13. So after the first quarter, Tennessee only scored three points the rest of the game. And part of that was because Derrick Henry was a total non factor. He had 18 carries for 40 yards. That's 40 yards more than I had in that game for the NFL rushing leader who had over 2,000 yards in the season. Now, Lamar Jackson, when when the Ravens got down by 10, it, it turned into the Lamar Jackson show. His final stat line, he had 179 yards and an interception through the air, and then he had 16 carries for 136 yards and a touchdown rushing. So he had 315 total yards and a touchdown. But his the best play, it was third and nine for the Ravens on the 48-yard line. And Jackson took off from the pocket and sprinted 48 yards to the house. And there might be one or two quarterbacks in the league that could have made that play. The only other quarterback that comes to mind is Kyler Murray with the speed that, that Jackson and Murray have. They're the only two quarterbacks that could have made that play. And Jackson is just... When he gets in the open field, good luck, because you ain't catching him. 
but there was some drama at the end of the game. Uh, if you recall back in week, uh, I believe it was 11, these two teams played each other, and it was in Baltimore. And Tennessee decided it was a good idea to dance on the uh, Ravens logo at midfield. Well, karma, as they say, will get you because what ended up happening is Marcus Peters picked off Ryan Tannehill very late in the game to end any potential comeback threat from Tennessee. And the Ravens decided to go ahead and celebrate on the Titans logo at midfield. So the teams didn't shake hands after the game. The players ran off into the the dressing rooms. and Yeah, so it was a little drama late, but um, Baltimore wins. This was their sixth win in a row, dating back, of course, to the regular season. So Baltimore has won six in a row. They look pretty potent. And uh, they got a a tough one next week in Buffalo that we'll go over here in just a minute. But the second game on Sunday was in the NFC, and that was the number seven Chicago Bears at the number two New Orleans Saints. Now, I picked New Orleans to win this game. Didn't see any way Chicago would win, even though the two played a close game earlier in the year uh, at Soldier Field. But New Orleans ended up winning 21-9. And it was 21-3, but on the very last play of the game, uh, Trubisky threw a touchdown to Jimmy Graham, and it was triple zeros on the clock when he caught it. Fantastic catch, by the way. One-handed extension. Uh... Fantastic catch. But when he caught it in the end zone, triple zeros, Jimmy Graham literally dropped the ball in the end zone and ran to ran through the tunnel to the locker room because they didn't even kick the extra point. Uh, Chicago's offense as a whole throughout the entire game was absolutely atrocious. Only 239 total yards. Just complete domination by New Orleans. Chicago was never in the game at all. And the score... 21 to 9 looks better than what it actually should have been and that that was probably 21 to 3 but uh, Drew Brees 265 yards two touchdowns just a you know average performance for Brees and then Alvin Kamara doing what Alvin Kamara does 23 carries 99 yards and a touchdown two catches 17 yards so 116 yards of offense and a touchdown for Kamara that is really his baseline uh, it, you know, it, that's what he does every week. Now, Michael Thomas, the Saints wide receiver, who had led the NFL in receiving last year, he missed the last four games, sat out the last four games due to a high ankle sprain that he sustained earlier in the year. So this was his first game in over a month. He came out with five catches for 73 yards and a touchdown. Now, his touchdown was his first touchdown this year, and it was actually his first touchdown catch in the last 385 days. So it had been a while since Michael Thomas found the end zone, and I think his involvement in the passing game is a big reason why the Saints won. Uh, They go as Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas go, and that's really really kind of how the Saints function. So they move on as the two seed. They'll host... uh, uh, another playoff game here next this weekend, this upcoming weekend. We'll get into that in a minute. The final game on Sunday night was no, in the AFC. It was number six Cleveland Browns against the number three seed Pittsburgh Steelers. 
Now, I picked Pittsburgh in this game. And I said it wasn't even going to be close because the Browns were without head coach Kevin Stefanski. He tested positive for COVID, so he was at home. So they had an assistant coach uh, filling in as head coach. Their offensive coordinator, Alex Van Pelt, called the plays. They didn't even get to practice as a team until Friday, two days before the game. I didn't think Cleveland was even going to be in the same venue as Pittsburgh throughout this game. Well, guess what? Cleveland won 48-37. to How the hell did they get there? Well, Pittsburgh gets the opening kickoff. Very first play of the game. Snap from Marquise Pouncey goes over the head of Ben Roethlisberger and rolls all the way into the end zone where Cleveland recovers the fumble for a touchdown. Okay, damage control. Pittsburgh gets the ball back on the ensuing kickoff, run a couple plays, and Ben Roethlisberger throws an interception. All right, let's play some defense. Pittsburgh's defense, that's all they were, they were built on defense this year. Well, Cleveland took three plays to get in the end zone. 40-yard touchdown from Baker Mayfield to Jarvis Landry. Uh-oh, 14 nothing, and we haven't even... Pittsburgh's run about four plays, and they're down 14 nothing. And Cleveland's probably ran about... Cleveland, at this point, had run three plays, and they were up by 14. Now, like, Pittsburgh was just... From that point on, you knew it was going to be ugly. It was actually 28 to nothing at the end of the first quarter, which 28 points is the most ever by a team in the playoffs in any single quarter. Now, Baker Mayfield for the Browns, 263 yards passing, three touchdowns through the air, and that running back tandem of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, my God, they combined for 206 all-purpose yards, three touchdowns. Uh, They just couldn't be stopped. They were running well. They were catching passes out of the backfield. It was just, they were basically unguardable. Now, on the flip side of that, Pittsburgh, Ben Roethlisberger, Threw for 501 yards, four touchdowns, four picks. Pittsburgh had 163 more yards of offense than Cleveland did, and they had possessed the ball for five and a half minutes longer than Cleveland did in this entire game. So if you would have told me Cleveland can't practice till Friday for a Sunday game, they have no head coach, Roethlisberger throws for 500 yards, four touchdowns. They have the ball for five and a half more minutes, and they score 37 points. I would have told you that the score would have been 37 to 10 or something like that. Did not see that coming from Cleveland at all. It was their first playoff win since 1994. So 26 years of uh, playoff winless streak snapped now Pittsburgh is in trouble moving forward uh, they got a, a few good young players on offense Chase Claypool Juju Smith-Schuster Deontay Johnson they got weapons on the outside halfway decent offensive line but they have no running game and Roethlisberger's 40 years old this team's in trouble their offense was too predictable And I talked about that last week as well. 
it's ugly for Pittsburgh in the future here. I'm sure, I don't know if they're going to blow it up, rebuild, or try and run this thing back another year, but oh boy, Pittsburgh has some issues. So to recap my predictions, I went four and two in my wild card predictions. Not bad. Um, my losses, of course, were Cleveland beating Pittsburgh and the Rams beating the Seahawks. But that brings us to the uh, div- uh, divisional round of the playoffs. And we have two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. The uh, We'll start off in the NFC, the NFC matchups. The number six seed Los Angeles Rams travel to Lambeau Field to play the top-seeded Green Bay Packers. This game's on Saturday afternoon. It's going to be cold in Green Bay. 24 degrees is the high that day in Green Bay. No snow in the forecast at the moment. But those SoCal boys, they're going to be chilly playing at Lambeau. Aaron Donald suffered a rib injury in the second half of that Seahawks game. He's listed as questionable, but he's already come out and said he'll be good to go. He's going to play. Jared Goff. He's going to start because Wolford's going to be out. Wolford hasn't practiced all week. He's got a neck injury. So Goff's probably going to start. Man, I want to pick the Rams because of that defense. But they're in Lambeau Field coming off a fully healthy Packers team that had a week off last week. The matchup to watch is Packers wide receiver Devontae Adams and Rams corner Jalen Ramsey. I think that matchup's going to determine kind of how this game plays out because if Ramsey can shut down Adams or keep him in check, the Rams have a chance to win. But Devontae Adams had 18 touchdown catches this year. The Rams as a team only gave up 17 passing touchdowns this year. So something's got to give. And given the circumstances, my money is on Packers and Adams and Rodgers, that combo. I mean, Rodgers, he's going to be your NFL MVP this year. So I I can't bet against the Packers at this point at home at Lambeau. Uh, Give me the Packers to win. The other NFC matchup is the number two seed New Orleans Saints against the number five seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This game's at Mercedes-Benz Superdome in New Orleans. This is the third time that these teams have played each other this year, of course, because they're NFC South Division rivals. It's Brady versus Breeze. And that matchup, obviously, is one to watch. Uh, Two historic quarterbacks going head-to-head in the playoffs. The Saints have just blasted the Buccaneers in both games this year. So there, you know, Buccaneer Brady hasn't beat Bra- uh, Breeze this year. Um, again, the Saints go as Kamara and Thomas go, and the Buccaneers looked well. Truthfully, the Saints and the Bucks both looked not as good as they probably should have in last week's matchups. So I want to pick. Brady because of the Tom Brady factor. 
you know, in the playoffs. But the Saints are at home. You know, there's no crowd or minimal crowd. There was a few folks there at the Superdome last week. But the Saints still have home field advantage. Uh, they didn't have to work as hard for their win last week against Chicago as the Bucks did against Washington. I just like the Saints. I, 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 I am going to pick against the playoff Brady in the second round here. I just... I trust New Orleans defense more than I do Tampa Bay's defense. And so give me the Saints to win this one. But that's going to be a damn good game. Now we'll flip over to the AFC. The two matchups in the AFC. Number six, Cleveland Browns go to Arrowhead to take on the Kansas City Chiefs. And on the other matchup, we'll, we'll I'll talk about that in a second. The other matchup is the number five seed Baltimore Ravens against the number two seed Buffalo Bills in Orchard Park. Now, this AFC is ridiculous. Check out these quarterbacks. You have Baker Mayfield, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson. Three of those guys... Mayfield, Allen, and Jackson all went in the first round of the 2018 NFL Draft. Mahomes was in the 2017 NFL Draft. The oldest starting quarterback out of those four playoff quarterbacks in the AFC this week is Baker Mayfield, and he's only 25 years old. Baker's 25 and 272 days. Patrick Mahomes is also 25, but he's at 116 days. Josh Allen's 24 and 235 days. Lamar Jackson, 24 and 4 days. So you got some baby quarterbacks in this that are the absolute future of the NFL, especially with Mahomes, Jackson, Allen. Uh, Mayfield's still kind of working his way into that conversation. Um, but my goodness. Uh, so going back to those matchups, we'll start off with Cleveland and Kansas City. I didn't pick Cleveland to be in this game, so I'm not going to pick them to win this game. Kansas City is the best team in the league. They are at home. They had a week off last week. Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill both had week 17 off of the regular season, so they haven't they've had 2 weeks of rest. This team is going to be locked and loaded, and I would be absolutely stunned if the Browns kept this thing close. Uh, I just, Kansas City's offense is a video game offense. It's it's really not even fair. So I'm, I'm picking Kansas City to win. I think it could be uh, easily a two or three score victory. Now on the flip side of this, the Ravens and the Bills. They'll have fans in the stadium again. Last week was the first time all year that the Bills had fans in the stands and those guys were nuts. As usual, Lamar Jackson, the way that Lamar Jackson played against Tennessee is the way he's going to have to play against Buffalo. That being said, Josh Allen is an MVP candidate this year, and there's a reason for that. He's taken his game to another level. Him and Stephon Diggs are absolutely on the same page in all facets of the offense. I like Baltimore. I think they have a really legitimate chance to win this game. And if there was a lower seed 
to win that has a good chance to win. I would say the Ravens probably have the best chance to win out of the four lower seeds just because of the play of Lamar Jackson and the fact that they've won six straight. But Buffalo's also won six straight uh, as well. And like I said, the Allen-Diggs combo, they're at home. I, I just cannot pick the Ravens to beat the, the Bills at this moment. It's really, this one was the toughest game to pick, but I'm taking the Bills. I just like, I like the, the totality of their team and the way that they play offense and uh, like to eat up a lot of clock and time of possession. So give me the Bills to win. We'll see how that goes this weekend. It's going to be a very interesting weekend. The weather might also be a factor in Buffalo, too. The high is, is around 30 degrees. There is, there's been snow that's kind of been popping in and out of the forecast. So that the facet of that game changes uh, if, if it starts snowing and it's inclement weather. Both quarterbacks are mobile, both can run, and both teams are effective at running the football as well. So that's going to be a slugfest, whether or not there's snow. Uh, but we'll move over to NCAA college football. We had a national championship game this past week. It featured the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Ohio State Buckeyes. It was at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Florida. What a sight that was. That was uh, quite the scene. There were some fans in the stands there. Good to see that, of course. Now, the line on this game coming into it was Alabama minus nine points. And I had talked last week. I predicted Alabama would win. Uh, But I liked it to be close, and that was assuming that Justin Fields would play like he did against Clemson and that Trey Sermon would be healthy. Well, neither was the case because Justin Fields did not play like he did against Clemson, and Trey Sermon lasted for one play before getting hurt. He uh, hurt his shoulder on his first carry after two yards, and you could really tell that that affected him in a big way, uh, or the team, that is, Ohio State. They lost Trey Sermon, and they just could never recover, really. And this game got out of hand. Uh, The final score was Alabama 52, Ohio State 24. Now, mind you, Alabama came into this game with three of the top five Heisman finalists. They had the Heisman Trophy winner, and their offense just continued where they left off. They they averaged uh, almost 50 points a game during the regular season and just looked unstoppable. Mac Jones, the quarterback for Alabama, finished third in the Heisman voting. 464 yards passing, five touchdowns, no interceptions. Most passing yards in a national title game in college football playoff history. Running back, Najee Harris. He finished fifth in the Heisman voting, won the Doak Walker Award. He had 158 total yards, three touchdowns, two on the ground, one through the air. He, again, looked like somebody you just cannot get to the ground. He was turning two-yard runs into five, six-yard runs all night long. 
it just wasn't fair. I think he solidified himself as a top overall running back in the NFL draft and likely a first-round pick. And then there's Devontae Smith. He won the Heisman. So he comes out in this national championship game, and in the first half, he puts up the pedestrian numbers of 12 catches, 215 yards, and three touchdowns. That was in the first half. He was on pace for 400 yards and six touchdowns. Now, the opening drive for Alabama in the second half, he dropped a pass uh, that was thrown to him from Mac Jones, and he got hit as the ball came to him. And Smith actually ended up dislocating his finger on the play, and he never returned to the game. He ended up finishing the game in sweatpants on the sidelines. But his numbers speak for themselves. He won the offensive MVP for the game, and he only played two quarters. But he had 215 yards and three touchdowns. Devontae Smith is literally the most dominant wide receiver in college football that I've ever seen play. He's only 5'9", 175 pounds. But the dude plays... Well, he might be taller than five. I don't know. He's, he's only like 175 pounds. The dude plays like an absolute monster. He is crisp on route, super smooth route runner, great hands. Uh, in fact, I saw a story on him. He stays after every practice, Devontae Smith does, and catches 100 balls out of the uh, throwing machine. He has the throwing machine throw him 100 footballs after every practice to get some extra work on his hands. He's just, he, he's definitely going to be a top 10 pick. In fact, I think he could go as high as number three to Miami. Hell, maybe even number two to the Jets. Who knows? But Devontae Smith is going to be a, a top 10 pick. This game just proved that he's, he's absolutely, it, you know, Alabama's produced some massive wide receiver talent. Julio Jones, Amari Cooper, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, you name it. The list goes on. But I think Devontae Smith is the very best out of all of them. In college, that is. Uh, We'll see how he translates to the NFL. But as far as college performance goes, Devontae Smith is the best wide receiver in Alabama football history. Now on the flip side of this, the Ohio State Buckeyes, like I said, Trey Sermon, he got hurt. First carry for two yards. I think he dislocated his shoulder or something. He left. He actually went to the hospital to go get checked out. So you figure Justin Fields would have to step up his game. Just like he did against Clemson when he was hurt. But Fields just completely folded. He was 17 of 33. So basically 50% passing. 194 yards and a touchdown. Six carries for 67 yards. Absolutely abysmal through the air. Couldn't get anything going. Trey Sermon went down, so Master Teague, he ended up filling in nicely with 64 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. But Alabama, basically, the way that they played, they forced Ohio State to have to throw the ball. Uh, Ohio State got down by enough where running was not an effective option. So Alabama wins. This is their sixth national championship in the last 12 years. That's 50%. That's insane. 
Nick Saban, the coach, won his seventh national title, passing Bear Bryant for the most national titles by a coach in college football history. He is the GOAT of college football coaching. No debates about that. Now, this 2020 Alabama team was super special. They are the first team in the college football playoff rankings era to go wire to wire as the number one team. Start the season as number one, end as number one with a with the title. Alabama played 13 games this year. They won 12 of them by at least 15 points, including both of the college football playoff games. The records that this team set this year, Alabama as a team set an SEC scoring record for a single season, averaging 48.5 points per game. Quarterback Mac Jones, he set the single season FBS completion percentage record, 77.4%. That's insane, completing almost 78% of his passes. Running back Najee Harris, all he did was set the SEC single-season touchdown record with 30. 30 touchdowns in 13 games for a running back. Insane. And that fella named Devontae Smith, he set the single-season SEC record for receiving yards with 1,856 and receiving touchdowns with 23. And both of those numbers would have been higher had he not gotten hurt in the second half. In fact, he may have gotten to 2,000 yards on the season if all he needed was 145 yards in that second half, which the way he was playing, that was probably going to happen. But either way, those are the records that that team set. So Alabama just continues to dominate college football. And a lot of that is Nick Saban and his recruiting. Check out this recruiting class from 2017. So these are the Alabama recruits from 2017. This is one recruiting class. On offense, Mac Jones, Tua Tagovailoa, Najee Harris, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Devontae Smith, Jedrick Wills, Tackle, Alex Leatherwood, tackle. And then on defense, Dylan Moses, who got hurt last year but came back this year, and Xavier McKinney, who was a second-round pick, the New York Giants. That is some serious talent. That's not even fair. And that was just one recruiting class from Alabama. These guys are pumping out NFL talent left and right, and it's showing because they are just as dominant as it gets And I hate Alabama with a passion. And truthfully, I'm sick of seeing them win it. But it's because they got Saban, it's because they recruit, and it's because they do everything the right way. Now, talked about this last week. Alabama's offensive coordinator, Steve Sarkeesian, left and got hired as the University of Texas head football coach. And he brought with him a few other coaches from the Alabama staff. So Texas is looking really good on the coaching front with the staff that Sarkeesian's putting together. So in order to fill Sarkeesian's spot, Alabama has hired former Houston Texans head coach Bill O'Brien to be their new offensive coordinator moving forward. 
So that'll be interesting to see how he impacts that Alabama offense that Sarkeesian had wheeling. So to wrap up the college football season, the final Associated Press Top 25 rankings were released. And I'll just read them off for you so you can hear. Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Texas A&M, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Georgia, Cincinnati, Iowa State, Northwestern. 11 was BYU, Indiana, Florida, Coastal Carolina Chanticleers, the Mighty Shots, finished at 14th. Louisiana, 15. Iowa, Liberty, North Carolina, my Texas Longhorns at 19. Oklahoma State at 20. USC, 21. Miami, Ball State, finished at 23rd. San Jose State, 24. And Buffalo, 25. So there's some teams that we don't never hear from uh, finishing inside that top 25. So what a wild year in college football. Absolutely fantastic. Looking forward to next year. You want some uh, national championship title odds for next year? Let's take a look. Your favorite, of course, is Alabama. 7-2 to two are the odds there. Clemson 4-1, to one, Georgia 4-1. to one. Then it gets interesting. Ohio State is thirteen to two, so basically six and a half to one. Oklahoma is seven and a half to one. Iowa State twenty-five to one. Uh, Notre Dame drops down to twenty-eight to one. Uh, LSU forty to one. My Texas Longhorns were forty to one, but I don't know if that was if this list was posted before they hired Sarkeesian or not. I would venture to say that it was before they hired him because Texas odds have got to be better than that with Sarkeesian coming in town um at Texas A&M is also listed at 40 to 1 you know there's it's going to be competitive uh, I really think that the NCAA needs to expand the college football playoffs because I'm tired of watching the same four teams play every year and you know it's just it's Alabama it's Clemson it's Ohio State you can pencil them in. There's three or your four teams every year, and it's just it's super annoying. They need to expand the playoffs to at least eight teams minimum, and there's been talk of doing that. I doubt it's anything imminent here in the next year, uh, maybe 2022 at the earliest, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes, but college footballs, it's going to be interesting this year. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, where we do some quick hit topics to various sports. Starting off in the National Basketball Association, and oh my goodness, we have lots to discuss here. Definitely a juicy week for the old NBA. It started out, we had several games, and that's still going on as we speak, getting postponed due to positive COVID tests. There are several teams that have kind of had some issues. I know the Dallas Mavericks, Miami Heat, Philadelphia 76ers, of all multiple players test positive, they had a game postponed. Because if you don't have eight healthy players, you can't play. Uh, The 76ers actually, uh, a couple nights ago, had a game in which they played with only eight players because that was all that was on the roster. Uh, I think the Brooklyn Nets did that as well this past week. So NBA, they've already come out and said that they are not planning on pausing. They have no plans to pause the season. But they did review their 
uh, safety protocol, so to speak. And they came out with some new, um, you know, safety protocols to kind of help keep basketball on the court. And just to highlight some of those, players cannot go to clubs, bars, or lounges. They can't attend any gatherings with more than 15 people. And they got to wear masks on the bench. Can't have anybody. uh, Players and staff can't leave hotel rooms for non-team activities can't have visitors in their hotel rooms um you know it's just when teams are in their home markets both the players and the staffs must remain at home unless they're going to a team related activity so they've laid out a bunch of these health and safety protocols that are they're they're just trying to keep basketball on the court well brooklyn nets guard Kyrie Irving um, there's been an issue going on with him he he missed last week because of a personal issue and he's he was ruled out early this week for these this week's games and earlier this week it was circulating on the internet picture of him at a party without a mask on so the NFL or the NBA looked into it and uh, Kyrie Irving's not playing this week definitely a violation of, of protocols there but there might be something else going on with him. Who knows? It's just he's he's a super talented player, but he just has he's got some issues going on. Now the Brooklyn Nets as a whole, uh, they've been talk of the town this week because the biggest news out of the NBA was a blockbuster trade that went down on Wednesday afternoon, and it involved the Brooklyn Nets, the Houston Rockets, the Indiana Pacers, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's a four-team blockbuster deal. Players went every which way, draft picks flying around. The centerpiece of the deal was James Harden. He went from Houston to Brooklyn. So I'll just read off what every team acquired as part of this deal. The Brooklyn Nets, they acquired James Harden and a second-round pick. The Houston Rockets, they acquired Victor Oladipo, Dante Exum, Rodion's Karuks, four first-round picks, and four first-round swaps. Indiana Pacers, they got Karis LeVert, second-round pick. Cleveland Cavaliers got Jarrett Allen and Torian Prince. And now, after that trade's gone down, there's reports coming out that Victor Oladipo is not happy getting traded to Houston, and he has no plans to stay there long-term. Yikes. That's a big old mess. Houston, though, I think they came out on top. They got a ton of draft picks. They got some good talent. And they're building for the future as well. They still got John Wall, uh, you know, all-star player. So Houston's looking good for this year, you know, for, for years moving forward, I guess. Whereas Brooklyn, they just mortgaged their future. But they have now the best trio in the NBA with Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving when he decides to show back up to the Brooklyn Nets. And and maybe this trade will help get him to the Nets quicker because with those three playing, they're, they're going to score 120 points a night as a team. But we'll move on 
from the NBA. We'll slide over to Major League Baseball. Of course, baseball's in the middle of their offseason. Uh, I talked about some trades that have gone down on last week's episode. This week, I'll just get you caught up on a few bigger-name free agent signings. The Chicago White Sox agreed to a three-year deal with closer Liam Kendricks. It's a three-year deal worth $54 million guaranteed. Kendricks has been one of the best closers in the MLB the last few years. Chicago's got a good young lineup. Uh, they were right there in the playoffs this year, uh, right on the edge, and um, they're they're moving forward as an organization, and so Kendricks helps solidify the back end of that bullpen. The NL East Atlanta Braves, uh, the winners of the NL East, they signed Charlie Morton to their starting rotation. Morton, of course, recently played for the American League champion Tampa Bay Rays. So they get Morton in that free agency, and that's that's a good pickup for them, helps solidify that rotation. Kansas City Royals, they signed first baseman Carlos Santana from Cleveland. Good, good uh, switch hitting player there. Now the Washington Nationals, we talked about an important trade they made last week to get Josh Bell at first base. Well, they signed some insurance there for Bell. They signed first baseman Kyle Schwarber, power hitter from the Cubs. So between Bell and Schwarber, the Nationals figured out their uh, first base position for this upcoming year. Even further helping them improve a, a team in a competitive NL East. But we'll go over to the National Hockey League now. Some news there. New Jersey Devils goalie Corey Crawford, longtime Chicago Blackhawks goalie. He retired abruptly this past week from the league after taking an indefinite leave of absence previously. So he just up and retired. Now, the weird thing about this is that he had just signed a contract with New Jersey this offseason. So he hadn't even been in New Jersey that long, but I'm not sure what the reason of, of his re- retirement is, but he was a Stanley Cup champion with the Chicago Blackhawks several years back. Devils are definitely going to miss him uh, not being there this year. But with the NHL, the season's underway, and they had some positive COVID tests in the league. You know, the NHL, they conducted their... Uh, Training camps, 31 teams, and only 27 players before the season started tested positive for COVID. And that's 17 from the Dallas Stars. So the Stars, they haven't even started playing yet. Their first game is uh, next week, and they're not allowed to play until they get that under control. Now, I do know the Stars have resumed practice, so that is a good sign. All of the players were symptom, or most of the players were symptomatic. So during during the uh, two-week period from December 30th to January 11th, leading right up to the season, uh, NHL players were tested for COVID on a daily basis. About 12,000 tests were administered to about 1,200 players, and they only had 27 positive. So pretty low percentage rate for the NHL. That's good. Good uh, prognosis moving forward with them. Now, this NHL season, I talked about the realigned divisions on previous episodes. The top four teams in each of the four divisions will make the playoffs this year, so it's going to be super competitive. The uh, odds for the Stanley Cup champion, we'll go over those. The Colorado Avalanche are the 
betting favorite to win the Stanley Cup at 6-1. to one. The defending Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Bay Lightning, are at uh, six and a half to one, fifteen to two. Vegas Golden Knights nine to one. Toronto Maple Leafs eleven to one. Boston Bruins fourteen to one. Philadelphia Flyers seventeen to one. Then there's a handful of teams at twenty to one. Carolina, St. Louis, and Washington. And then the Western Conference champion Dallas Stars. They're coming in at twenty-five to one. That is a fantastic bet, and I would jump all over that if I was in Vegas right now. 25-1 to 1 for a team to win the Cup that just ended up winning the Western Conference not several months ago. But uh, we'll circle back over to the PGA Tour. Just a couple quick notes from there. First one, the 2022 PGA Championship announced that they are changing venues. It was originally scheduled uh, for the New York suburbs Trump National Golf Course Bedminster. Uh, Bedminster, and of course, with uh, the issues going on in our country right now, PGA decided to remove its name from a Trump National Golf Course. The PGA, however, did not announce that any a, a new venue for that. But there are several courses being considered, including Bethpage Black, Southern Hills, and Valhalla. So it'll be interesting to see where that. PGA Championship ends up because it is just uh, about a year and a half away, I guess. Now, the other news out of the PGA, and I kind of referenced this last week's episode, is the plans for the Masters as far as attendance goes. The Masters announced this week that it was going to have fans in attendance in limited numbers uh, to coordinate or coincide, rather, with the health and safety standards in place. Tournament scheduled April 8th through the 11th. So, uh, of course, as you recall, there were no fans in the stands this past year. Definitely a bummer. So they're looking to um, have fans uh, on property at the Masters for all four days of the Masters tournament here in 2021, which is, again, scheduled to get going here in a little less than three months. But we'll move back over to the National Football League. There's a ton of ton of quick hit topics coming out of the NFL. The first one, this regular season was the highest scoring regular season in NFL history. 12,692 points were scored this year in the league, in the regular season, which that's incredible. With the weird COVID season that we had, you had multiple players missing multiple games for COVID. You had elite running backs, Christian McCaffrey, who only played in a few games due to injury. Saquon Barkley tore his knee up. You had elite level uh, offensive players missing all season. And, and, you know, positive COVID tests left and right. And you still were able to set a record for the most points scored. That is just, to me, that's incredible. Uh, I just, I found that to be very interesting. Some massive news out of the NFL. This is, you know, I talked about last week being a a rumor, reports uh, of a massive trade between Miami Dolphins and the Houston Texans regarding Deshaun Watson. Now, like I said last week, Watson was pissed off. They hired a GM that he didn't really care for. They didn't get his input. 
pissed him off. They don't have any weapons. Houston's going in a downward spiral and in a hurry. So I completely understand Watson wanting to get out. But this rumor's picked up some serious steam this past week. He's got a $156 million contract with a no-trade clause, but he's informed the team that he would remove the no-trade clause and consider the Miami Dolphins. Now, Tua Tagovailoa and probably a ton of draft picks would be involved in that trade. That's picking up a lot of steam. That seems like it actually might be somewhat possible at this point. Uh, Houston would demand a king's ransom from Miami, Uh, And I think Miami would be willing to give it because they just missed the playoffs this year. They're 10-6. and They got two first-round picks this year and a ton of other draft capital that they can throw into that deal. But uh, it will be super interesting to see if anything else comes of that here in these coming weeks. Well, last week uh, I talked about some coaches that were fired. You can add Eagles' Doug Peterson to the list. Philadelphia fired Doug Peterson after five years as the head coach. He went 42-37-1 in his five-year tenure, including 4-2 and two in the postseason, in which he won Super Bowl 52 back in 2017. Uh, I'm a fan of that firing because I hate Philadelphia. I'm a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. I hate the Eagles. I hate Doug Peterson. I just hope that they fire, or I hope that the Eagles hire somebody that is worse than Doug Peterson. It's all I can hope for. Now, speaking of the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys had to fill their defensive coordinator position after they fired Mike Nolan after an absolutely abysmal defensive season. So they went out and they hired ex Falcons head coach Dan Quinn to be the defensive coordinator. And I'm super stoked about this because Dan Quinn was the Seattle Seahawks defensive coordinator during the Legion of Boom when they had Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and those guys, and they were winning Super Bowls and competing for Super Bowls. So I think the Cowboys personnel matches up. They run a 4-3, and that's what Dan Quinn specializes in. Mike Nolan had tried to switch him to a 3-4 defense this past year, and we all saw how that went. So I'm excited for Dan Quinn. He's a well-respected coach knows what he's doing, and I think he's going to get that defense fixed up. Now, speaking of those Seattle Seahawks, they fired their offensive coordinator, Brian Schottenheimer. Uh, His offense has set a number of Seahawks records, but he met with Pete Carroll, and after that meeting, it was basically decided that the best interest of both sides was to part ways because they had some philosophical differences. That was the quote. Um, you know, after that uh, horrible performance against the L.A. Rams this week, I completely understand why Seahawks are wanting to go a different way. Now, back up to the uh, New Orleans Saints-Chicago Bears game this past week. That game was broadcasted on CBS and Nickelodeon. And that is outrageous. I actually flipped over to Nickelodeon just to check out the broadcast because I was seeing that it was quite the spectacle. And, man, it was pretty funny. It was definitely kid-oriented. You know, when uh, touchdown happened, they did the slime on the screen. and They definitely made it very Nickelodeon-y, if that's a word. Uh, there was a field goal attempt in which uh, they had the view from behind the kicker and 
SpongeBob's face appeared between the uprights. You know, I mean, it was it's actually pretty funny. Uh, pretty, pretty interesting way to view football. Um, I personally, after I checked it out, uh, I flipped back over to CBS to listen to Tony Romo and Jim Nance. There's just something special about listening to Jim Nance call sporting events. So I watched it on CBS, but I did I did check out the Nickelodeon broadcast. That was that was pretty funny. Now, speaking of the New Orleans Saints, they, they played in that game. Saints running back Alvin Kamara. If you recall, Christmas Day, the Saints played the Vikings. And Alvin Kamara had six rushing touchdowns that day. But most importantly, most noticeably about that, he wore a red and a green cleat. Mismatching cleats, not to uniform of the team. He came out and said, if the league finds me, I'll match it and send it to a charity. Well, he goes out and scores six touchdowns in that game. So the Pro Football Hall of Fame calls and says, hey, we need your jersey, we need your cleats, and the fifth and sixth touchdown balls from that game. So he puts them in a box. He's getting ready to send them to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. He also slips in the fine letter that he got from the NFL for wearing the red and green cleats. So that is the ultimate troll job by Alvin Kamara, sending his fine letter from the NFL back to the NFL and the Hall of Fame. Definitely props to Kamara on that one for the uh, the troll job there. But some, some massive news that have come out of the NFL the last uh, day and a half, really, is a couple of big head, co- uh, head coaching hires. I talked last week... Two teams that had fired head coaches were the Jacksonville Jaguars and the New York Jets. Well, the Jaguars were the first to find their coach. They hired Urban Meyer from the college ranks. And Urban Meyer is probably one of the best college football coaches in history. He's right up there with Saban. He's got three national titles with uh, four different you know, programs that he's been at. He's a culture changer. And he's just a fantastic coach. Um, He's got the first pick in the draft. He's going to take Trevor Lawrence. And he gets to build Trevor Lawrence an offense and a team that they can win with. And so I think not a whole lot of college coaches have great immediate success in the NFL. But if there is one that could, given his circumstance, I think it's Urban Meyer. Not only are they going to draft Trevor Lawrence, they have almost $80 million in cap space. So they can go on a free agent binge here uh, this offseason. So the other head coach, the New York Jets, they announced on Thursday night that they hired San Francisco 49ers defensive coordinator Robert Sala as their head coach. He agreed to a five-year deal. Sala's defenses in San Francisco have been absolutely off the charts these last couple of years, and he's really made a name for himself and was projected to get a head coaching job this offseason. A lot of people thought it would have been in Detroit because that's where he's from, but the Jets ended up snagging him, and uh, man, he's he's a great defensive coach. The Jets have some good defensive players, uh, but the rest of the team just needs a lot of work, so they own the second pick in the draft, so 
We'll see what Robert Sala does there. You've got to assume it's going to be an offensive player that they take, uh, even though he's a defensive coach. But they need help everywhere and anywhere. So uh, Robert Sala's been a hot name in coaching, and uh, he's he settled in New York as the Jets' head coach. But that's going to wrap up the 23rd version of the Sports Island podcast. I appreciate the support. Um, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This podcast is, of course, available on any major platform that you listen to podcasts. You can also find the podcast on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. Appreciate the support and the listens. And uh, stay safe, be well, and uh, we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.